with Mosey Don into the uh, the Late Show Library, and uh, joining me this week is Nick Richardson, author of a book. I want to have a chat to him about uh, called 1956, but a lot of other books he's written as well, and uh, obviously a journalist of note to boot. Nick, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, let's talk about this book, 1956, first up. Uh, now, what number in the book regime for you is this? Uh, <laughs> depends how you count. Um, I think this one should be number eight. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 1956, an interesting year. I mean, obviously very near and dear to my heart because that's the year I was born. But everyone who talks about 56 immediately says the Olympics and television. But there's a hell of a lot more going on in this country uh, in 1956 than just those things. Yeah, and look, um, I'm glad you mentioned both of those things because they were the starting points for me too. And once I started to go down that path, I actually realised and started to, the research revealed all these other things like the Maralinga nuclear tests in outback South Australia, the influx of Hungarian refugees from um, the Soviet invasion of Budapest. Uh, there was the arrival of um, poker machines in New South Wales that became legislated for the first time in any jurisdiction uh, in the world outside of Las Vegas. Um, there were there was um, towards the tail end of 1955 one of Melbourne's iconic figures, Dame Edna Everidge, yeah. came came into being. Um, so there was so many kind of interesting points and interesting departures and arrivals that made the year kind of so compelling, really. And we were we were sort of uh, we 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 were distanced from the war then, we, and we were sort of I guess it was it was the start of Australia growing up as a country, wasn't it? Yeah, and look, that, that's basically my, my view in, in a nutshell, that we started something there. And, and you know, those of you listeners and uh, will remember uh, perhaps that this was the year of the Sunday drive and uh, oh, we yeah. started our, rela- our relationship with the motor car. Um, we started, li- you know, living in suburbs. We started, you know, valuing the, the kind of suburban life which the, the two world wars had basically prevented us from... From having so there was a bit of affluence around, there was a bit of aspiration, and there was, of course, lots of uh, opportunities to spend money on things like uh, fridges yes. and and uh, washing machines, and uh, later in the year, TV. Yeah, one of that that newfangled thing that had that uh, all that stuff on it, which has become such a, a, a massive part of our life, was was getting the Olympic Games, and uh, I mean it was one what the closest vote in the history at the time, twenty one to twenty. Yes. Was that yeah. was that sort of did that give us some international credibility? Uh, look. Initially, certainly not. There was a great deal of scepticism about whether we were going to be able to carry it off, especially in the US, um, because there were a lot of US cities that had actually made the bid for the Games and obviously were unsuccessful. But one of the things that was seen as being a huge problem for us was in those days we still had the six o'clock swill, which Mm. meant, of course, that you couldn't get a drink um, in Melbourne uh, after six o'clock at night. So as an entertainment uh, option for those people who were here to watch the games during the day, what was going to be here for them at night? So that became a bit of a concern for a number of people. Uh, the other concern was that even our own delegates, even the own people who was kind of uh, walking around the place trumpeting us uh, to the world, thought we were a deadly dull city. Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the one of our uh, Olympic uh, uh, delegates said how much you know he was a Melbourne born and bred, loved the place. But yeah, he said even though 
even though I'm from here, it's it's a very dull place. But of course, the, the town that it was then is not the city it is now. And my view is that 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 uh, the Olympics themselves had a very civilising uh, effect on the city. Um, and where we are now kind of in a sense reflects that multicultural cosmopolitan feel that started to roll out at the end of 56. There are a few kind of cultural things about uh, Melbourne and Australia in particular getting uh, the 56 Olympics, which didn't didn't sit well with a lot of other countries. And that was, of course, obviously our, the way we treated our Indigenous population even back in those days. Yeah, there was. And, and the white Australia policy, which was still very much in the ascendancy, uh, offended a number of um, our Asian neighbours, especially the Philippines, who were very agitated um, and and labelled as hypocrites for trying to lobby them for their vote uh, to hold the Games, when in fact our relationship with the Philippines and a number of other Asian countries was so fraught. And of course, bear in mind, you know, when the bid decision was made in 1949, we're only four years after the war and there was still some very overt hostility towards uh, Japan in particular, which filtered through all that kind of discussion. Well, that that end of forty nine period, which is how you, where you start the book, is is about uh, Japan actually trying to be readmitted to the rest of the world in many ways, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and they they saw the the Olympics as a as a way for them to restate their credibility. They you know they felt that they would have actually held um, the games, but for the war. Um, so they felt that one of the, the best ways for them to rehabilitate their international image was through being part of the Olympic movement. Um, that, of course, would take some time. But the really interesting thing that I found was that it seems that it was the Japanese delegates' vote that secured Melbourne's bid for the game. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, was it always going to be Melbourne when Australia decided that their Olympic Games were always Was Melbourne always the driving force? Or, you know, we know about this yeah. state rivalry. Yeah, yeah. No, very much it was always going to be Melbourne. And, and interestingly enough, um, although, you know, most of us remember Sydney with um, and what a success it was, there were some times between 1956 and uh, 1996 where there were uh, some abortive um, Melbourne bids to kind of try to um, to host the Games again. Um, but, you know, given the way the IOC operates, it would have been highly unlikely for for Melbourne to, to succeed again. So it made perfect sense, I suppose, in some ways that Sydney would be the logical successor if Australia was going to host them again. The 1956 version, or as it was the, the late sort of 40s, early 50s version of getting the votes from the delegates, uh, is sort of, it hasn't changed a hell of a lot really, has it? Well, no. Uh, I think the scale of it might have done, yes. Kev. But um, yeah. um, back in the day, you know, they were sending, the, the 1949 bid team were sending um, uh, cartons of Australian wine um, around the place. Um, and there was a bit of pressing of the flesh and, and a bit of international travel. But it was certainly nowhere near the... Uh, uh, <laughs> Yes. Uh, the the spirit of of, of the uh, the lobbying was there, but but certainly not the scale. 
Yeah, the secret handshake was still in vogue, I think, back in those days. Oh, absolutely true. Absolutely true. <laughs> We're talking to Nick Richardson, who is the author of the, this terrific book called 1956, The Year Australia. Welcome the world. We welcome the Olympic Games. And, and you mentioned it earlier. Uh, we welcome the television uh, and, and TV into into our lounge rooms. Uh, first, I think, for most people of, of that era, and I know my dad used to talk to me about it, it was through the window of the local electrical shop. Oh, it was yeah. in the lounge yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> too right. Too right. Yeah. And you you know, um, uh, there would be big queues, um, people fascinated by what they were seeing, um, you know, whether it would be in uh, Ascot Vale or whether it was in town or wherever, they'd be queuing up just to, to have a look at this new medium. And, you know, the studio audiences who were there for the official launches were were kind of a, a bit convinced that they were seeing some form of magic. Um uh-huh. Uh, which kind of, you know, in those days, uh, it must have seemed like exactly like that. Yeah, it was an amazing co sort of, uh, I mean, did we get it because of the Olympics or did or were we going to get it anyway or uh, how did that kind of, how did that sort of play out? We were going to get it anyway. Um, it, was a, it was a happy accident of timing in some ways that the Olympics were around at the same time. Uh, and, of course, the, the coverage of the Olympics was, was very um, secondary. Um, to the overall rollout of the, the technology and the establishment of the stations themselves. But it did give those um, stations a, an opportunity to trial the technology and and for them to actually assess uh, the audiences as well. And, of course, um, the beauty of it was that there was still an opportunity to fill the MCG uh, and then... Uh, also show some footage from the main arena as well to those people who had access to a TV. Yeah, it opened the world up to us, but gee whiz, we had no idea what, how, how much, you know, what, where we were going to go with this technology when it, when it started in 56. No, absolutely not. And in fact, you know, um, you reflect on it now, and for most of us, the arrival of colour TV is the thing we perhaps remember most vividly. But um, it was... It was a, it was a seismic effect on on lounge rooms across the country, and you know, in ways that we wouldn't even have thought about. Like uh, there were instructions in the papers about how to uh, how to configure your lounge room so you could get maximum viewing pleasure from the TV. <laughs> what kind of table you might need, what kind of seating arrangement. It was it was almost a, a high science. And none of us went blind watching it, even though we were told we no, were. No, no, uh, that's right. Is, when you think about it and, and look at what TV did in 1956, is that exactly what uh, the telephone's doing in uh, you know, 2020? Maybe so. It, yeah, you could be onto something there. I mean, it, the thing is that once technology starts, we have no way of knowing where it will take us. The other things, the, uh, you mentioned a couple of other major events of 1956. I mean, the Maralinga thing is, is obviously pivotal in, in many ways to, to what happened in this country. And the refugees was the kind of the start of the, of the I guess, the, the multicultural and, uh, and, and uh, the, the fabric of our society in many ways happened back in 1956 with those events. Yeah, I think it's an important point to remember that... Um uh, we were quite an open country then, and, and as a consequence of the opening our doors to the um, to Eastern Europeans at that point, we finished up taking uh, fourteen thousand Hungarian refugees, which is, is a significant um, impact on on you know our overall immigration numbers. Yeah. Um, we, we'd already started taking a number of Mediterranean um, immigrants. But there was now, I think as a consequence of 56, 
uh, more receptivity to those from elsewhere in Europe in particular. And those people became integral to the notion of modern Australia, really. Yeah, absolutely. Culturally, uh, you mentioned Dame Edna, <laughs> and I do mention I do put Dame Edna and culture in the same sentence. Uh, 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 good on you, <laughs> as you should. <laughs> well, it is. It's Australian culture. Um, yeah. And uh, and summer of the seventeenth dollars another, I guess, a really significant moment uh, for us as well. Yeah, it was, and I think quite often that's one that's forgotten about. So, so that came along at a time when. Most of Australian theatre and most of Australian drama was actually um, borrowed from overseas. Yeah. It was either Shakespeare or, or uh, performed by Australians, adopting bizarrely um, an English language, an English accent. Um, by the time we got to Summer of the Seventeenth Doll, we were actually being, you know, the, the actors were being encouraged by the English director to actually speak Australian, uh, and you know, so audiences that came along to this wonderful play were for the first time not only hearing Australian accents on stage, but also Australian phrases, you know, put on your collar and, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, in ways that they'd not been hearing um, in Australian theatre before. So it was a really pivotal moment in terms of all that. In terms of uh, the, the, the line that you use for the book is the, the year that we welcomed the world. It was also kind of almost the year that we said, well, hang on, this is us. Yes. And, and, you know, there is a level of self-confidence that we needed to have about that. And I'm not, I wouldn't say that we were particularly self-confident at that stage. I think in many ways, as Bruce Howard, the photographer who I quote in the book said, you know, said there was a feeling, especially in, in Melbourne, leading into the Olympics, that we'd bitten off more than we could chew. Um, so there, were, there was a sense that maybe, um, maybe this could all go terribly wrong for us. Uh, but I think the confidence that came from pulling it off and the international um, pleasure that the Games generated at a particularly difficult time internationally, yeah. I think that success was a terrific um, boost to to Melbourne's sense of itself and the country's sense yeah. of itself. The book is called 1956. Nick Richardson, the author, is uh, is with me. Uh, you mentioned uh, in the book that uh, that there were some people who, who guarded uh, some of the things that happened in 56 for various reasons. How, um, how did that play out for you? Oh, look, it was very much a reflection of sensitivities um, and the difficulties that they'd encountered, both in terms of where they come from and, and, and the circumstances of their arrival here. Um, some of them in particular didn't want to talk about what happened in in Hungary in '56, yeah. uh, that's completely understandable. Um, but I think it's also true that um, uh, it underlined yet again how deeply personal these moments in history are for anyone who was there, and uh, that's important thing for people like me to remember when we're writing that history. Yeah, I want to talk to you about another couple of because we're in the late show library, so we can have a look at a couple of your other books. Uh, the game, of yeah. the, the game of their lives that you did. Um, a yeah, fascinating story about a, a you know a game of footy in England in nineteen sixteen. Yeah, so I, I you know I'm particularly um, uh, taken with this because um, this all started with coming across some some footage, some very old, obviously black and white footage from nineteen sixteen of two teams of diggers who were on their way to the Western Front who stopped in London uh, and played what was the first overseas exhibition match of Aussie rules. And the, the calibre of the players on, on those teams was was extraordinarily good. 
um, you know, when we talk about uh, interstate footy carnivals, you know, the best of South Australia and the best of WA and the best of Victoria and all of that, it's that level of um, quality footballer who donned their, uh, those Guernseys for this particular match in London. There were about 5,500 there, Kev, who, uh, a lot of them diggers on leave, who turned up at, at the Queen's Club in London. And those of you or listeners who um, are tennis fans as well would know that the Queen's Club is actually where the, the preamble to Wimbledon takes yeah. place every year. So that, in back in the day, back in 1916, that was open field, and uh, it was where the where the diggers showed off their game to um, to 5,000 spectators on that day. Pardon my ignorance, but why hasn't that been made into some sort of a mini series or a, a you know a, a, some sort of movie of some description? Oh, I'm just waiting for the call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so, I mean it's it's just a great story. Oh, it is a great story, and the, you know some of the the men who played, and you know like Bruce Loss, who was a, a wonderful player for South Melbourne. Uh, he was engaged uh, to be married when he left, um, and his father-in-law was going to build the, the house for he and his wife. Um, and six weeks after the game, he was killed on the Western Front, never oh, made it home, obviously. Um, and, you know, there are several of those kinds of heartbreaking stories, which, um, I mean, if, if, he, if he'd survived, he probably would have become a Brownlow medalist at some point. He was, yeah. he was a significantly good player um, and a thoroughly decent individual who would have been a community leader in his own, own right as well. So, you know, there are, there are hundreds of those stories. Um, that happened through World War One, and and this is you know looking at through the footy filter, um, you actually get to see those in, in a slightly different way. Yeah, when we see a movie with a, you know the enormous budget of a film like 1917, which is you know yes. up for Academy yeah, yeah. Awards and stuff, and I and I saw this story, I thought, wow, that's surprised. I'm surprised that that hasn't made it onto the big screen at some stage. Yeah, well, look, um, there is. The, the two and a half minute footage has been rescued and and colorized oh, and, and and can be seen but um and it's amazing what a difference colorizing makes to the faces of those young men because yeah. um, uh, I mean the thing that struck me when I watched it the first time in black and white was the absolute joy these blokes had at actually being out on the ground playing footy with their mates yeah. it doesn't get any better than that. And uh, yeah, and, and and not watered down with you know sponsors logos or uh, yeah, yeah, all, absolutely, all, all that sort of stuff is the pure yep. joy of being out there. And and I guess the colorization showed you how young they actually were. Ah, oh, yeah, no, it was it's it's kind of, and you know some of them had come from pretty stretched backgrounds, yep. but uh, uh, there was no doubt that that footy meant a lot to them. Yeah, that, that, that through their lives. Uh, kitchen table memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a book yeah. in 2003, I think it was published. Was it published in 2013? It might have been, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, there about. So the, the idea for that is very much around, and I mean, it was that classic thing where we were having a, a reno uh, done at our house and we, you know, we had to kind of abandon the, the kitchen table for a while. The reno went on for, you know, weeks and weeks. And I got to thinking about how important kitchen table is as a, as a place where people come together and share stories and talk about talk about life and family and friends, and uh, uh, it really, I think, resonated with a number of writers who I 
who I approach to um, to contribute to the books. Yeah. So that's what that's all about, really. And yeah. there's some cracking cracking stories in there. Denise Scott talking about um, her mum. Um, there's a wonderful piece from Martin Brown, who's a film producer, who uh, brought the art of table climbing um, to the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> to, you know, uh, who knew such a thing existed? Um, you know, all all those sorts of things. So it's it's a and and proceeds from it go to food bank um, as well. So it was. It was a it was a happy project, and um, I, I still find people kind of mention it to me because I think it it actually resonated with their experience of kitchen tables yeah, as well. Absolutely, absolutely. What you working on at the moment, Nick? Uh, well, it's actually a book for the MCC, Kev. So um, yeah, so we'll see how that turns out. Oh, beautiful. Well, congratulations on 1956. Terrific book, terrific reading. It's been fabulous having you on uh, having you in the late show library. Thanks for your time. <laughs> No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Jeff.